We are talking once again with Job Parrish and Maria Tomczyk, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. Good, ap- good afternoon. Good to have you back, Job. Thank you. Last Saturday was difficult. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll be saving a video of that. Oh, no. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> For some of our longtime listeners. All right. So, uh, plenty, uh, things happening. Some, some good news this week. Um, I think we have like one piece of good news for the week. Yeah. Starting out the week with some good news. The Tuesday vote on, uh, Seattle public housing. 33% of registered voters mailed in a ballot. And that's, or about 165,000 voters, uh, on Initiative 135, and with about 95% of those votes counted as of last night, Friday night, the yes votes were winning by 57% to 43%. So it looks like the Seattle social housing developer will become a reality in Seattle. And that's a pretty good turnout for a February vote also. It is, yeah. So a lot of people felt very strongly about this initiative, both for and there were some – a significant number of folks who voted against it. Uh, and I think that's because the opponents did a really good job uh, pointing up some things that were untrue about the initiative. And uh, if you want to find out what those are, I talked about those a couple weeks back when we were talking about an, the upcoming vote on uh, I-135. Mm-hmm. But the charges, the charges that this, that I, that, uh, the Seattle social, social housing developer will compete with other, uh, nonprofits for funding just is not true. It's designed to look for funds that other nonprofits are not able to go after. And it's also designed in a way that will allow it to continue to, it can build market rate or, or just under market rate housing a certain percentage of that, and it can use the proceeds from that not to pay shareholders for, you know, as, as, as private developers do, but instead to turn around and build more affordable housing, which is something that other nonprofits are, cannot do because they have to build and run a hundred percent affordable housing. They just don't have that prop, that, you know, quote unquote profit margin that they can turn around and devote to acquiring and building more. Housing. So the Seattle housing, public housing developer or social housing developer is now uh, a reality. And how how will that developer be run? Is it going to be a nonprofit board or? Well, you can go back and read the initiative. The charter for the developer is actually part of the initiative and it's not a difficult read. I suggest that people do it because it's a it's a quick read, it's fairly easy to read and it lays it all out there who's going to be on the board. Uh each uh housing unit or each each housing uh building will have its own board and the board will have members on it who are residents of of the of the housing of the building itself. So it, I think it's really important that people read the charter so that you know it's not difficult and um you'll get a be- much better idea of what the social housing developer will be doing. Hmm. So it's almost like a homeowners association. Yeah, exactly. Except it's structured to be for people uh, needing affordable housing as well as a few market rate units. 
Mm-hmm. Now, some folks would argue, well, who's going to want to live in a building, you know, with uh, multiple people of multiple incomes? And I have to tell you that I am one of those people who is currently living in a building like that, a uh, building that is run by a private developer who got a tax break to provide a certain number of affordable units. And it works really well. And okay. that tax and break my is building in- is. My building is well run, it's well taken care of, and it is not a problem. Yeah, that tax break has been in effect for at least the last decade in Seattle. So a number of new buildings have gone up with that mixture of different income levels in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I highly recommend uh, that folks go back and read the charter and fully understand what the Seattle social housing developer will be doing and get excited about maybe renting or living in one of those units, particularly if you are closer to mark, if you can afford closer to market rate, because you will be your uh, money that you're paying for rent will not be going into the pockets of some rich folks who are shareholders in a private corporation. It'll be going into a pool of money that will continue to build uh, affordable housing in Seattle. Okay. So, and it might be a, you know, one of those litmus test um, issues with the city council races that are uh, beginning to gather more candidates. Uh, yes, there are. Uh, there were several new candidates again this week. Uh, the primary will be in August and the deadline for filing is in May. So there's plenty of time for more candidates still. Um, right now there were new candidates this week in District 1, which is West Seattle, District 2, Southeast Seattle, and District 3, um, which is, uh, uh, Capitol Hill and, uh, Madrona, you know, out to, the, out to the lake. Um, so in District 1, the new candidate this week was Rob Saka. He's, a, yeah, he's an, an attorney and social justice advocate, correct? Yes. Yeah, Rob Saka is a tech lawyer. He's an Air Force vet. Uh, the name is he's part Nigerian, and he's the fourth announced candidate um, for. Actually, I think his adoptive father is Nigerian. Okay. Yeah. Well, his. He's the fourth announced candidate for the seat being vacated by Lisa Herbold. And um, he's got a website up. Um, he's pretty strong on on police accountability uh, as someone who knows what it's like to be a person of color in Seattle and be a target of, of the police just because of how he looks. He's strong on supporting the Seattle Police Department, but also I think he would be supportive of Andrew Lewis's push for a for a civilian uh, responder team. And uh, he's been talking a lot about standing up things like additional behavioral health uh, resources, uh, drug treatment programs, but also uh, helping to helping to get people housed off the street. So I think he'd be a pretty good supporter of the of the progressive wing on the yeah. city council. And bear in mind that he's replacing Lisa Herbold, who has, mm-hmm. uh, you know, been public safety chair for the last several years and has really pushed for police accountability in that role. Yeah, it's early days yet. But, you know, the the South Seattle Emerald also has a has an article uh, that they just Posted on Valentine's Day on Tuesday, 
that where they're talking to and talking about Rob Saka. So I would refer you there. I think mm-hmm. the stranger may also have something on him. They definitely do on the other candidates that we've that yeah, we'll this, this be stranger, talking about. I looked at the strangers. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot of details. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So I would send you over to the South Seattle Emerald. Right. I'm sure he talked to them a little bit more. He also has his own website up now, too, for his for mm-hmm. his campaign where you can see. He doesn't have uh, many endorsements listed there yet, but I'm sure his website's in progress. Yeah, it's very, it's very early for endorsements. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, most organizational endorsements come in April and May. Yeah. So uh, when, you know, you get close to the filing deadline. So, so that's District One. District Two, we uh, we now have Tanya Wu is the fourth, excuse me, the third candidate to take on incumbent Tabby Morales. She is, uh, identifies as an international district activist, um, and the interviews I saw with her didn't belie a whole lot of knowledge about what somebody who is on city council actually does. Um, I don't know if that was your impression, but yeah, her she comes from a family who are small business owners in the Chinatown International District. She leads the Chinatown International District Community Watch, kind of uh, 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 community police, you know, assistance group that goes around and patrols at night, tries to uh, uh, prevent crime. Uh, she's a former employee for King Five. She used to run their teleprompter desk. Um, she has got a couple of strikes against her in my book. One is that she let she was part of the opposition to a new city city shelter for homeless folks in the Chinatown International District. She helped get that killed. Um, and she said more than once that she wants to use jumpstart tax funds, payroll tax funds to fund more police, hiring more police. So that would be a diversion of the of the council's original intent for those funds. And Um, and SPD hardly SPD hardly ever gets any budget increases. (laughs) Right. And it I don't think it needs that money. And uh she's very pro developer, all about adding tax incentives to to help uh private developers uh upzone. So I yeah, think except in the ID. Yeah, I think she's going to be very I think she's going to be very much aligned with the sort of pro business, more conservative folks on the city council. She'll be working probably with Sarah Nelson. What really concerns me is um is that she doesn't seem to know all that much. I've I've kind of given you a good summary of what I think she thinks, but when when she's interviewed and you read the interview, it doesn't come out as coherent as that. No. You know? no so I, I'm kind of concerned she doesn't know that much about about city politics and what the city council actually does. And I have mm-hmm. to say that in a race against somebody who's as uh, good as Tammy Morales, she may get her head handed to her on a plate. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting because, uh, you know, the business community has to decide whether it wants to get behind a candidate like Wu exactly. taking on Morales or whether they see it as a waste of money and Morales just isn't beatable. Now, remember, Morales was one of the only candidates in 2019 who got over 50 percent on the on the primary ballot. Um, you know, she was a very, very strong candidate, and that was as a challenger for an open seat in 2019. Now she's an incumbent. I think she'll do very well this year. She's going to be hard to beat. Yeah. 
Now, this brings us to District 3, the seat being vacated by Shama Sawan. And uh, we have now Efrain Hudnall. He's the guy who's in the King County Prosecutor's Office. And uh, in 2017, while a student at Seattle University Law School, he was also briefly a member of the Federalist Society, according to the stranger. Um, if elected, he wants to complete the streetcar. <clears throat> um uh, incentivize developers to build a, quote, um, poop ton, can I say that, of market rate housing, and institute a vacancy tax. Now, those are pretty standard urbanist positions, particularly completing the streetcar, which is, you know, money down a sinkhole as far as, um, as far as transit projects go, because it's really designed not to move people or goods around town, but to increase property values. That's what fixed rail is all about. So, um, you know, um, and the, the streetcar ridership simply has not been very good. And I don't think uh, building a connector line between uh, the terminus in Pioneer Square and another terminus at Westlake Park um, is going to increase that ridership a whole lot. Um particularly because it would result in a single line that basically has a U-shape. Um, so there's not a lot of through traffic there. Um, and he wants, what, 200,000 new um, mostly market rate housing? Over um, the next decade, I think. Yeah. yeah, he's got pretty standard urbanist positions, and the folks who are gung-ho urbanists are going to love Hudnall. Um, and uh, the folks who... Are, who are uh, have been around Seattle for a while and know a bit more about Seattle city politics are going to be asking, so what else does he really know about things like homelessness and uh, uh, getting housing to be more affordable, not just building a ton of market rate only? And you yeah, know, what does and he know about things like police accountability, you know, coming from the, the King County prosecutor's office and not, as a defense attorney, you know, what as, does he yeah, know as, about and transportation? A, just and just a relatively a, a relatively young attorney too, right? And just just being kind of a knee jerk supporter of 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 what a lot of folks view as a big transportation boondoggle rather than real sort of transportation solutions. So I. And, I I think all all District three, 3 needs is one, you know, well-versed candidate to get in there, and, and he probably would uh, not be that great of a candidate. But so far, there really isn't another great candidate in District 3. Yeah, so. there's there's seven different candidates who have filed in District yeah. 3. I'd that like number's to just going to incre- keep increasing. Yeah, um, I've liked but, Ash Yofu so far among the candidates in that mm-hmm. in that district. I think he is actually uh, better than Hudnall at this point. Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 200,000 new uh, units of any kind, whether it's market rate or not. That's a big promise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. But if you had that, you know, Seattle's population now is well over 700,000. Uh, 200,000 new units would probably push you towards a million people in Seattle. We would need a huge investment in all kinds of infrastructure, yes, parks, we would need schools, that. transportation to accommodate that kind of influx of people. And I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, no, we'll see. 
Let's uh, move on, but uh, sticking with the city council. Yeah, Yeah, this week, the uh, Lisa Herbold's Public Safety and Human Services Committee met to discuss the 2022 year end annual crime report. Chief Adrian Diaz joined the meeting remotely to present the slides and answer questions. Council members attending the meeting included Chair Herbold, Vice Chair Andrew Lewis, and members Teresa Mosqueda, Sarah Nelson, and Alex Peterson. As you might expect, the committee was split into two camps. The the one, one camp is was the sky is falling faction of Sarah Nelson and Alex Peterson. And the other camp is, wow, we're turning a corner faction of uh, Herbold, Lewis, and Mosqueda. So uh, what does the report itself actually say? Um, it uh, doesn't it doesn't just look at crime in 2022 versus 2021. It also calculates a five year weighted average and gives some details and comparisons from earlier years. So you can see the long term trends, which is nice. Um, in 2022, crime went up four percent overall from 2021. But some things went down. Uh, bias crimes were down from 2021 with 18 fewer bias incidents and 14 fewer hate crimes or 14 percent fewer hate crimes. And in the fourth quarter of 2022, crime dropped sharply and the rate is still trending down in January and February of this year, according to Chief Diaz. But the graph in the actual report, I want to point out, not just in the slide deck, but in the actual report, really looks like crime has actually been trending down since about June of 2022. So for a full eight months now, not just three to five months, as Sarah Nelson and Alex Peterson were saying, I think that's really important to note that it's a longer term trend. Chief Diaz talked a lot about gun violence and shootings and shots fired. Fatal shootings are up. There were 39 total, though, in 2022 versus 32 in 2021, 26 total in 2020, and 19 in 2019. And that 2019 number is a lot closer to what the number usually is for the city uh, in the previous few years. It's typically under 20, which is really, really good for a city of our size. And 39 is not that bad for a city of our size. Now, the shots fired metric accounts for a much higher spike, 543 in 2022 versus 446 in 2021. And then in 2019, there were about half as, there were under half as many, 233. Before that, it tended to average between 200 and 300 in the years prior. So 2022's rate is about double the normal. But again, shots fired is not necessarily people injured or killed. Diaz pointed out that about 30% of the time, no victim can be found. All they find are shell casings or all they have are calls to 911 saying that somebody heard a shot fired. Uh, Diaz talked about the number of guns on the street and the number that the police have recovered or seized in recent years, over a thousand guns per year since 2017, including 1,349 total guns seized last year. Uh, Lisa Herbold asked if there were specific neighborhoods where more shot fi- shots fired incidents are located because the maps that were shown in the slide deck show that fewer neighborhoods were involved in these reports in 2022 than in 2021. In fact, it's much fewer neighborhoods. Diaz spotlighted the Central District and mentioned 12th and Jackson, homeless encampments in the CD, 
and, uh, air, an area around Aurora Avenue where a lot of human trafficking goes on, which sometimes spills over to Lake City and Northgate. And he also mentioned Brighton Place and Westwood Village in the South End, 95th Street near the Safeway on Rainier Avenue and downtown as hot spots. Now, Alex Peterson compared, of course, Alex Peterson had to jump in and say something negative. He compared 2022 crime rates with 2019, which he considered a baseline of pre-pandemic normalcy. Uh, overall, crime in 2022 is about 17 percent higher than in 2019. Um, Chief Diaz then responded. He said uh, crime in January of this year is below the five year weighted average, which includes the years 2018 and 2019. So, yes, crime is trending downward <laughs> from its peak during the pandemic. Now, Andrew Lewis wanted to emphasize that the city has been forced to accept unsanctioned encampments to shelter people. <clears throat> Early in the COVID pandemic, the federal government provided funds that were used to house people in hotel-based shelters, which significantly cut crime rates without criminalizing people who are poor and homeless. But the federal funds are drying up now, and many of those folks have been pushed back out onto the street. Sweeping encampments really does not help them, and it doesn't stop the uh, criminal elements that victimize homeless people and that bring crime to homeless encampments. And so he just wanted to point out, look, there are ways to, to deal with shots fired around homeless encampments and other crime that occurs nearby. And that's getting people into shelters. Now, Teresa Mosqueda pointed out that crime surges are a national trend. This is very important because in cities that are the same size as Seattle or larger, many of those cities have far more homicides than Seattle, sometimes double or triple the number. She also pointed out that the fourth quarter of 2022 was the fourth consecutive quarter that violent crime injuries and deaths decreased for people between the ages of 18 and 24 in Seattle. It's a result of efforts by community groups and the Harborview Gun Violence Prevention Program. And then Lisa Herbold pointed out that the city council recently funded an expansion of the Harborview Gun Violence Prevention Program so it could help folks older than 24 to try and get those shootings and homicide rates down for older age groups, too. And she pointed out that gun violence for folks ages 20 to 24 in Seattle is down 55 percent, according to the crime report. So some successes there, right? Part of the we're turning the corner crowd with real statistics to back them up. And then, of course, Sarah Nelson had to jump in, part of the Sky is Falling group, to say that, in her opinion, homeless encampments are a huge problem. They're a huge crime magnet. Seattle shouldn't pat itself on the back because small businesses were doing very, very badly because she's hearing a lot of complaints, right? And we should all panic because our children are in danger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with yeah, no uh, statistics to back herself, yeah, her, her statements up. Data is always trumped by personal anecdotes, in my experience. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Oh, now, speak, speaking <laughs> of which, uh, memo, memo, sure. yeah, memo to the Seattle Times, when you are comparing Seattle crime rates to other cities, there are other cities of similar or larger size in the United States other than San Francisco. Just saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, Chief Diaz then helpfully pointed out in response to Sarah Nelson that crime in Seattle is now below the five-year weighted average for both violent crimes and property crimes, too. 
And yes, property crime was up 4% over 2021, but it's largely being driven by motor vehicle thefts, not retail theft. (laughs) Okay. Sarah Nelson continued then to say that the statistics weren't accurate because she hears a lot of complaints from small businesses. And then Alex Peterson seconded that. Nelson thinks that the crime rate is actually higher because small businesses don't report crimes to keep their insurance rates from going up which actually I think is probably BS, and that uh, businesses experience a lot of threats against their staff that are not reflected in the crime stats. And then Chief Diaz very nicely responded that the Seattle Police Department has been making it a lot easier for business owners to report crime online. Uh, He also noted that the SPD has busted a lot of robbery rings and that that's why retail theft is way down and that they've seen a decrease in those types of thefts so far this year. Again, vehicle theft is the biggest contributor to property crime in Seattle. Peterson then asked about morale and officers working overtime, and Diaz assured him that morale is getting better, and the department is seeing fewer people leaving in the past quarter. And the department is also now starting to get calls from officers who want to come back to work there. I'm sure the hiring incentives are are helping with that. (laughs) Now, Teresa Mosqueda asked about person down calls and overdoses. Are SPD personnel really needed for responding to those calls? Chief Diaz said that fentanyl overdose cases tend to lead people to being more violent when Narcan is used, although he didn't provide any statistics and or any reasons why that would be the case. And uh, he only noted that the medical examiner is seeing more overdose deaths related to fentanyl, which which we which is a nationwide trend. And I'd like to personally point out that many people who are not Seattle Fire Department or Seattle Police Department carry Narcan with them and respond to people they find on the street or or in places where they work who are overdosing. So it's something that civilians do all the time. Yeah, most homeless shelters, their staff has access to mm-hmm. Yes, and Teresa Mosqueda pointed out that when a person wakes up from an overdose, they might naturally respond differently to a police officer than to another type of responder. I think that was very important. <laughs> Mosqueda, Herbold, and Lewis all noted that bias crimes were down for all categories except for homeless people. That which is up 229 percent. Diaz pointed out that that it's only a total of 23 cases, but still it does reflect a rise in hate crime against people based solely on their lack of a place to live. I think a measure of the uh, political of the political temperature here in Seattle. Agreed. Yeah, Lewis noted that there appears to be a cultural bias within SPD to setting up a civilian responder team. Or maybe just a misunderstanding about how a civilian responder team could enhance and be helpful to the SPD in responding to lower priority 911 calls. That's how it's been used in other cities. Uh, Herbold pointed out that uh, other cities have been have seen success with their chief of police championing and helping to implement civilian teams. <laughs> and that Diaz will need to play a role in helping to launch this program here in Seattle. Chief Diaz said, oh, yeah, it's like the community service officers and we love them. But he didn't enthusiastically endorse a new civilian responder team. Andrew Lewis then kind of leaned into his camera and he offered to personally meet 
and use the resources of his office to meet with Chief Diaz and the rank-and-file SPD officers to answer questions, discuss how a civilian team might work, and help coordinate it, especially since the council funded it in this year's budget. So essentially, Andrew Lewis is trying to reach out and offer a carrot now after seeing that asking for and then pushing for a civilian team really hasn't gotten anywhere. So we'll we'll see. Now, the mayor's office is working with the SPD to come up with a comprehensive public safety plan for Seattle, and they don't appear to be coordinating that with the Seattle City Council. So I think Andrew Lewis and Lisa Herbold are worried that this that this plan that the mayor and the SPD are going to come up with won't have any civilian response team in it. So I now I think that's highly likely since Bruce yeah. is mostly taking his marching orders from Diaz and from uh, Spog. Yeah. And so uh, now we'll see if the SPD takes Andrew Lewis up on that offer. Well, I think we're out of time now. Yeah, I think we are. I think we've sucked all the oxygen out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. We'll be back next week uh, to to talk about more fun stuff in Seattle City politics. Yes, and to uh, claim the remaining oxygen. <laughs> <All right. laughs>